Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, thanks for having me out here. If you got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Ephesians. Even if you don't have your uh, analog Bibles, you could pull out your digital Bibles. That's right. Just pull out your phone and download that Bible app. It's pretty handy. And I encourage you because I want you, we're actually not going to put the uh, words up on the screen. I encourage you to look in your Bibles. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 and mark that. Throw your bookmark in there and then hang a left and go to Psalm 1 and mark that as well. Those are the two places we're going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, um, I'll, I'll let you know a little bit. Uh, I get to travel a lot. And one of the things um, I constantly am is in airports and on planes. I just, I'm frequenting airports and planes. And one thing I've learned about the whole flying experience is you really get a pretty realistic glimpse of human nature when you watch people travel. Because there's something about travel that brings things out of people. In other words, maybe we're pretty good about being polite day to day in certain circumstances, but something about travel, you start to see people get pretty real. I mean, if you see people boarding and they get the board in a certain zone and they're pretty excited because they get the board first or something, when somebody else all of a sudden is allowed to board in front of them, immediately you'll see people like, wait a second, wait, what? Check that boarding pass. Are you sure that they got the board there? You know, you'll immediately see that kind of frustration coming out of people. Or if you've got somebody who's had their seat selected for a long time and all of a sudden there's that person that gets on the plane, it's like, I'd really like to sit with this person. I'd like to sit with my child. My child's going to be alone on this five-hour flight. Would anybody like to give up their aisle seat and sit in this very comfortable middle seat between two 400-pound people. You could, please, you could sit there if you want. Just give up the seat for this lady and her child. And you don't see a lot of people being, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You see people like, I got my seat three months ago. I'm a frequent flyer. And besides, when you're flying, not a lot of people around you know you. So there's kind of this lack of accountability. You can be a jerk all you want. And nobody's even going to know when you get home that you we're a jerk. There's something about travel that brings it out of people. Well, this Monday, I was in the Denver airport, and I was getting ready to fly home to Sacramento. And as soon as I got to my gate, I noticed something was even a little bit worse than normal. Now, air travel is already not fun, okay? But something was even worse than normal because the terminal was packed at least twice as bad as it usually is. What I didn't realize until I got to my gate was that Southwest Airline was having problems with their computer system. Not everything, not their computers that, you know, showed the plane how to fly and not anything like that. It was simply the computer, you know, system that checks the weather. And even though the pilots could look out and be like, hey, the weather's pretty hot and dry, that wasn't good enough. The FAA, the FAA said, sorry, Southwest, None of your planes can go anywhere. As soon as they land, just stop them right there because until you get this fixed, nobody's flying. So picture what the ramifications of this are. Every Southwest plane in the entire U.S. was not moving at all. As soon as they landed, stop right there on the tarmac because all the planes that were at the gates, they weren't going anywhere. So all the planes that were coming in, that were supposed to go to those gates, those planes couldn't get to the gates to unload their people because the planes weren't going anywhere at the gates. And all the planes that were already in the air that were coming in had to get in line between, behind those other planes. So when I arrived at my gate, there was 15 or 17 Southwest planes out on the tarmac that were just not moving at all. And there was planes at every gate and nothing was moving. And people started to get heated. This is what happens if you spend any time in an airport. So I'm there. I quickly grab a seat. And within moments, all the seats are, taking, are, are taken. Because all of a sudden, not only when I arrived, there was a flight going to North Carolina that was supposed to leave before my flight to Sacramento. Well, all those North Carolina people are still there. 
and all the Sacramento people are arriving. So you have twice as many people there in the terminal. And I'm hearing this gate agent right here next to me trying to explain to everybody, and they keep making announcements. All Southwest planes are grounded. Please stop asking us when they won't be grounded. We don't know. As soon as we know something, we'll let you know. But we've got to get some of these early flights out, and we can't even get them out yet. So just please hang on. And then five minutes later, somebody walk up and go, what about my flight? What about my flight? I mean, this is why I just kept hearing over and over again. Well, by this time now, there's people standing, there's people sitting on the floor, everybody's looking to plug in their devices because their devices are running low, everybody's late, everybody's calling and saying, I'm probably not going to make it home tonight. And even after, you know, these North Carolina people that aren't moving at all, and now all the Sacramento people that aren't moving because they're in line behind the North Carolina people, there's now these Seattle people showing up, so we are about to have three times the amount of people in this terminal. It is like elbow to elbow. Everybody's uptight. Everybody's heated. And I tell you something, it's quite a picture about human nature right then when you see that. Because interestingly enough, the question that you heard out of every single person was, what about my flight, right? Wait, I don't understand. I'm supposed to go to Seattle. Who are all these people here? What do you mean Sacramento, North Carolina? I don't care about Sacramento. I don't care about North Carolina. I'm a Seahawks fan. I want to go to Seattle. That's all you're hearing there from there. The Sacramento people are like, who are you? Do you think you're here? We're trying to get rid of these North Carolina people too. And we don't need you encroaching on us because we're in line next. So take a seat, pal. There are no seats. I mean, this is, you know, this is human nature at its best here. And what we're starting to realize as everybody looks around is everybody's seeing from their own little lens. Everybody is all worried about my flight. And everybody's talking about, well, I missed this, or I've been on a flight all day. I have to get home and see my wife and kids. I, I, I. And what a picture of humanity. It's kind of ugly when you see it, but sadly, there weren't many people there that were like, oh, these North Carolina people really need to get home. Let's let them get home. They're like, forget them. Why don't they just leave? They missed their opportunity. It's Seattle time, you know? That's what everybody's thinking. They're all thinking about my flight. And sadly, it is quite a picture exactly of how we really are basically self-centered people. Now, I know some of you might sit there and go, well, Jonathan, I don't, I don't walk around thinking about myself. Okay, okay, I'll tell you what. Somebody takes a group picture of your family. When they hand you the picture, who's the first person you look for? Come on, come on, come on. What are you, you immediately look. And if everybody else looks great, but you're like, it's a bad picture. This is a horrible picture. Everybody else looks fantastic, but you look drunk for some reason, you know? You don't know what's going on there. It's a horrible picture. We are self-centered people. We always, we can't even help it, but we always just see things from our perspective. Have you ever been on a trip with groups of people? whether it's a family vacation, but, but let's, let's add even other people into it. Maybe you've been on a trip where you decide to travel with another family or with a group of families, or you're on a work trip with all kinds of different people. The more the merrier, right? After about day three or four, people start to get pretty real. Why? Because everybody sees through their own little lens and they all assume everybody else is just like them. And if you're going on a family trip with other families and you decide to go to a museum, to visit a museum, some people are like, oh, I just love to sit in this Van Gogh room. I could sit in this room for hours and just stare. And there's other people on the trip who are like, okay, let me tell you how I go through a museum. Here we go. Okay, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, <laughs> Splinter, 
Okay, forget it. That's just a different thing. Yeah, and they're going around. Thank you, those three people who are nerds. The, the, you know, and, and they're like, kind of like, out of here, quick. You know, boom, I could do a museum in half an hour. Forget museums. I want to go to a baseball game. Ah, a baseball game. The green grass, the hot dog, watching this long, and somebody else is all, long, boring game. Baseball's the worst. What kind, I mean, if you want to be, if you want to put me to sleep, sure, let's go to a baseball game. Give me an MMA fight. That's sports, all right? Two guys trying to kill each other with their bare hands. And someone else saw, oh, such violence. I can't believe all this different stuff. What is the best is a walk in the park. And all these people, you put them all on a trip together, and they all think that everybody else are complete idiots. Because that's what we do. We walk around and we sit there and we see through our own little lens. It's like we have a stick sticking out and there's a window in front of us. And everywhere we go, we're seeing through our little window. And we don't understand why everybody else doesn't see the same way we do. We, of course, are carrying our own experiences, our own biases, our own everything we've had in our life makes up how we see through our little lens. And we don't understand why other people don't see as clearly through that lens. It happens on the road. Sometimes, and we hate to admit it, but there's times where we're driving and all of a sudden we realize, oh, I was supposed to be in that lane. And what do you do? You quickly cut over in that lane. And then somebody behind you kind of, uh, 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 and you're like, come on, yo, what are you honking? What are you honking at? Right? Uh, God bless you, idiot. Right? And you're just driving. What happens a day later? A day later, right? You're sitting there driving along. Somebody cuts over. Oh, that guy thinks he's going to get over. <laughs> Idiot, right? It's the exact same situation. But we all see through our completely, uh, you know, our own lens. Don't you realize I'm going to work? I'm going to be late? Doesn't that person realize that I, this is how we live life. And sometimes we try to be polite and we try to do what we can to oblige others. But in all honesty, we're looking through our lens. In all honesty, we're all pretty self-centered people walking around navigating life. And when it comes to relationships, and when you look in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see our relationships, not just marriage relationships, but parent-child relationships, work relationships. We look at all these different relationships relationships are hard. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to try to navigate these relationships with some sort of grace and some sort of maybe considering others better than ourselves. It's tough. It's not natural instinct for us to do because we bring our own biases to that table of any relationship. I remember when my wife and I were first married, our first fight was about time. It was about time. Talk about insignificant. You see, I was raised to where whenever you show up somewhere, you show up on time. Ah, let me give you the definition of on time. Because according to my dad, on time is five minutes before. If you are on time, you're late. If you're five minutes late, you're rude, all right? On time is five minutes before. And truly, my dad, literally, you know, if it's like, hey, we're going to be somewhere at noon and you're meeting someone at noon, at 11.58, you're like, I can't believe they're not here yet. It's 11.58. I mean, what is it? 11.59? I don't even see them in the parking lot yet. How are they going to possibly get into the door here by noon? I mean, this is the way I was raised. And it didn't matter. It could be like, hey, let's all go on a picnic at three o'clock. My dad's got the car packed and we are in the car at 2.55 with the watermelon all sliced, you know, ready to go. Sandwiches, baskets, blankets, everything. Now here's the thing. I meet my wife and my wife was raised completely different. If her family planned a picnic and said, let's have a picnic at three o'clock, at 3.30, her mom might have been like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should start cutting some watermelon. What do you think? I don't know. All right, yeah. Let's make some sandwiches eventually here. I don't know. You know, should we, should we think about doing that? That was the way she was raised. 
Now, the funny thing is, so come our first picnic, you know, it's 3.30 and my wife's making sandwiches and she's like, come on, we got to have our picnic. And I'm like, we can't, our picnic's ruined. Our picnic was half an hour ago. It's completely gone. And the crazy thing is, I'm sitting here thinking, it's her problem. She said three o'clock. It's 3.30. She's a liar. She doesn't mean anything she says. And my wife's thinking, this guy needs help. <laughs> What's wrong with him? It's a picnic. It's a picnic. And so immediately, our first fight is about time. Because each of us brought our own background, our own experiences, and we all saw through our own lens. Sure, we all have our own stuff we bring to the table. But the funny thing is, we think our way is best. We really do. Tim Keller tells this amazing story. Pastor Tim Keller, author, uh, he tells the story of how he went to a wedding. And he said it was a wedding with some friends and happened to be an interracial wedding. And he said it was interesting because he said it was very evident that each race kind of brought their own feelings about what time you should show up to an event. And he says as he went to the wedding, he happened to sit on one side where all the people were there on time for this five o'clock wedding. And he says it was like a couple minutes before five and that entire side was completely full. The other side said it had like three people on it. Literally nobody was there. And he says, in all honesty, he goes, a lot of people wouldn't want to talk about this, he says, but I'm sitting there, I'm surrounded by people uh, of a similar race and they're all sitting there going, what is wrong with the people over there? I mean, it's a five o'clock wedding. It is 4.59. Nobody's there. What's wrong with them? You know, don't they have any sense of time? What's going on? Well, the funny thing is, he says, literally like around 5.30, the wedding starts. And as the wedding, you know, finishes and then they go off to, to eat, he says at the reception, he happened to be standing in line and he happened to be by a bunch of friends that were sitting on the other side of the aisle. And as he said, as he's sitting there with them, a lot of them were sitting there going, my goodness, what's wrong with those people over there? They're so uptight. I mean, come on, you know? I wasn't there, I was getting ready, you know? It takes time, what's the big deal? And he says, it's obvious that people disagree on how they do things. He goes, but the thing that is funny is that each side intrinsically thinks they're better. Each side thinks if they would only be this way with how they keep time, then they would be better. And very often, that's what we do. And when it comes to our relationships, a lot of us, we're trying to navigate relationships and one of the things we need to realize is this is so difficult. Whether marriage relationships, friendships, parent-kid relationships, a lot of us are seeing through our own lens. And when it comes to these give or take situations where, you know, it takes a little bit of give or take. This is tough. And a lot of us are kind of looking for guidance on, well, what do we do? And many of us, we've gone to church and like, let's say we're struggling in our marriage because honestly, we're at an impasse on certain things because you come to the marriage relationship with certain expectations and feelings on how it should be or, or maybe beliefs on how it is actually working out and your spouse has completely different feelings about how it's working out and honestly it's tough and for some of you you go to church and you go okay so what's the bible say about this and immediately if you go and somebody's preaching on marriage where do they go to they go to ephesians 5 and some of them they start right at verse 22 and for poor women they sit there and the pastor stands up and goes okay let's talk about marriage how to make your marriage better okay ephesians 5:22 wives submit to your husbands and wives are like forget this oh my goodness why would I want to submit to this guy? This guy likes baseball games. I want to sit in a, you know, in a museum for two hours. What about my flight? Immediately. We all start with that. Well, and I apologize on behalf of all pastors who start on verse 22. They shouldn't start on verse 22 because 
actually the translation's bad. Wives, submit your, to your husbands. Uh, the word submit's not even there in verse 22. It actually says, wives, do this with your husbands. It says, do this. You know why it says, do this? You know why the word is there? Because the verse before is where it's there. You really should start at least the verse, at least, bare minimum, verse 21, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, verse 22, wives, do this with your husband. Husbands, do this with, that, that's what it says actually in there. So it is a little frustrating when people start in the middle of it. But I'm here to tell you that when I hear a pastor start in verse 22 and says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on and says, here's what this looks like in your marriage. Here's chapter six, what it looks like with children and uh, relationships with our children. Here's what it looks like in relationships in the workplace because they'll tell you about how the slave relationship back then was much different than you know slave relationships here and it's really like a work relationship. And when you hear all this stuff, honestly, you're trying to sit there and relate to all this different stuff and you're going, what is this? The only verse you maybe relate to is verse 32, which this is a profound mystery, and you're like, yeah, this is a mystery. I do relate to that. I understand that one, but what's all this submission stuff? What's this look like? Because Jonathan, yes, I admit, we all do carry our own little kind of baggage with us. We all do see through our little lens, and yes, if we're honest, we are kind of, you know, self-centered people. And yes, Jonathan, I really even do believe that in relationships, there's some give or take, and it needs to happen. But here's the problem, Jonathan. How? I've tried, and I fail all the time. How do I do this? I would love to submit to one. Okay, great. Sounds good. I probably even believe it works. But I've tried, and I fail all the time. You could tell me day in and day out to be good and try to not get angry at other people, but then I went to Costco. <laughs> True story, I was at Costco yesterday. You know what happened? I'm sitting there waiting in the Costco gas line, and I'm waiting, first of all, the word gas line, okay? What are we, in the 70s? Is this Is the Carter presidency? Why am I in a gas line? But I'm at Costco, I'm in the gas line. Young people, look it up. Um, so I'm sitting in this gas line, I'm waiting my turn, and uh, everybody knows if you're in a Costco gas line that there's like these, you know, several different stations there, and if somebody leaves the station that you're allowed to then go up and squeeze in there, and that, that's, that, well, one person leaves, and, and the person in front of me isn't going and moving up to the spot. So I'm sitting behind, I'm just kind of, you know, the, the spot's open, you, you know the spot's open, right? You know, you just don't, so you don't say anything, you wait. Uh, uh, Another person even leaves. Now there's two gaps up there, and my person still isn't taking. And I'm, so I'm already sitting there thinking, this guy's an idiot. Why don't you, what are you scared to drive around the little car? Come on, get up there. We got a life to live, right? This is what our instinct is thinking about. Then to make matters worse, this guy over here is like, well, I'm, if this guy's not gonna go, I'm gonna go. This guy over here goes and takes one of the open spots. He's in the other line. That is a cardinal sin. You don't do that. This is why we shouldn't be allowed to open carry. Because I would have killed that guy. <laughs> that guy's an idiot. First this guy's an idiot. Then that guy's an idiot. Everybody's an idiot. Don't they realize I'm in a hurry? And so don't tell me submit to one another and give a take. These guys are idiots. This is tough. How do I submit? How do I do this? Well, the thing is, we're starting at Ephesians 5, 21, and we're starting in the middle of the movie here. You've gone, you've turned on the movie, and you see Liam Neeson kicking butt, and he's, and he's destroying people. And then he goes into a room, and he says, hey, remember me from the phone? And the guy goes, <gasps> and then he starts beating him up, and you're like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. You missed his speech. You missed the famous Liam Neeson speech. You know the, I've got a special set of skills, a set of skills, right? That speech, the important speech. You missed it. You don't even understand what's going on in the rest of the movie. Don't start halfway through the movie. Make sure you get the Liam Neeson speech. I'm sorry, I just ruined the movie taken for you. I really did. I'm sorry. But, but the thing is, flip back. Hang a left real quick. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're sitting there. Paul is honestly assuming that you heard the beginning of the letter. And in the beginning of the letter, as he talks and he tells you what's going on, we can, and for lack of time, I know it sounds hypocritical, I say, make sure you start from the beginning of the movie, and I'm not even going to start from the beginning of the movie because of time, but let's go to Ephesians 3, uh, 14, if you hung a left. Um, 
because this is basically the Liam Neeson speech. This is the speech you need to hear. This is, the, this is the part of the movie you gotta hear to understand the rest of the movie. He's assuming when he says, wives, submit to your husband, that you actually have read the part before it, which is submit to one another out of reverence for each other. And when you're reading submit to one another, he's assuming that you heard this earlier part, which is gonna talk about the how we do this. And as he's been talking about what God can do in our lives and the changes he can make, he gets to chapter three, verse 14, and he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul tells us right there, he says, the secret to all this is that God wants to fill you. He wants to, through his power, strengthen you with the power through his spirit. He's gonna tell you that it's through this spirit that you're gonna have this strength that you don't even understand. As a matter of fact, he uses the word, it surpasses all knowledge. You don't even understand what it looks like. And this strength, when we have his spirit in us, it's gonna root us in love. It's gonna become contagious to where all of a sudden we're gonna treat people differently. Not because we're trying, because if we've tried, it's impossible on our own strength. We aren't supposed to do it on our own strength. We're supposed to do it through the Spirit's power. What Paul's gonna tell us basically is that our relationship with others flows from our relationship with him. And then when we have his spirit, if you go on through the book of Ephesians, now we can read the rest. We've heard the Liam Neeson speech. We can go through the rest because in chapter four, we're going to hear, hey, let me tell you something. Uh, uh, don't live the way you used to live in the futility of your thinking, he'll tell you in chapter four. And where you exchange the truth with a lie and you began to indulge thinking this or that. No, no, you used to live that way. Don't live that way anymore because now you have the spirit. And then he goes on to five and he says, so follow God's example and live this way. Why? Because you have the spirit. So because you have the spirit, you're not gonna live this way. You're gonna live this way. It's gonna change your mind and the way you think. You're gonna, when you get to trouble, you're not gonna go to your old instincts and wanna like, you know, numb the pain. Was one, you don't wanna medicate your pain by going to the bottle, going to the pill bottle, drinking, that famous verse, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he says in Ephesians 5. Because he's saying, as you're filled with the Spirit, you aren't even going to go to those same things you used to go to because the Spirit is filling you and His love is filling you and it's going to change the way you think and you're going to be, begin to do all these things differently, including 5, verse 22, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our relationship with others flows out of our relationship with him. And when you allow his spirit to fill you, all of a sudden, it's gonna change the way we think and it's gonna start changing us from the inside out and it's gonna become contagious in everything we do. I was talking with my friend this week, uh, my friend Sean, I was talking with him about marriage. And you'll find out why I was talking about marriage in a second as I tell you a little bit of insight into my own marriage. And as we were talking, he said, Jonathan, honestly, I've been married 15 years. He goes, we didn't think we were gonna make it past year one. He goes, in year one, we uh, kind of hit an impasse. He goes, I was getting so frustrated with her and I kept verbalizing it and we would fight and we'd fight back and forth and we thought we were gonna get a divorce. And he goes, by God's grace, she went to see this therapist who was a believer and she goes, I'm gonna leave my husband. And I found this out later, Sean told me. She goes, I'm gonna leave him and this therapist said, hey, um, would you be willing to try something for a month? And she said, anything. He says, well, I'll tell you what, you're trying to do this on your own and you can't do this on your own. You need God's power, honestly, to do this. 
And what you need to do is you need to just pray every day and say, God, you give me this power. I need you for this. And you need to, if he's yelling, if he's stepping out of line, whatever, you need to not fight him. And I'm not saying be a victim. I'm not even saying stand there and take it. But do not fight with him or push back or tell him it's his fault. Just let him do his thing and love him for 30 days. And she goes, that sounds impossible. And the therapist says, is, is impossible except through him. And ask him to give you the power and you will be able to love him like that. Try it for 30 days and see what happens. And so she says, okay, it's worth a try. I want to save my marriage. So she goes and Sean told me, you know, things seemed like normal and I would get upset and I'd start arguing. And instead of her arguing with me, she was just like, Sean, I love you. We're going to get through this. And he was like, what? Said that a couple other times, he'd go and start yelling, and she would actually even just get up and walk in the other room and be like, hey, you know what? It sounds like you're angry. It sounds like you need to work some of this stuff out. I love you, and I'm willing to talk to you whenever, when you're ready to talk. Um, just know I'm here for you. And she wouldn't engage him. She wouldn't fight. She would just do that. He said one time he got really mad and he was arguing, whatever, and she just sat there and she said, Sean, I just love you so much. And he said, I just started crying. And, and he goes, how can you love me when I'm treating you like this? I don't even deserve it. And she goes, none of us deserve it, but he can love me like this, and so I can love you like this. And he's like, where'd you hear this? She says, from my therapist. And he's like, I need to see that therapist. She goes, yes, you do. And so Sean did. He went to the therapist and said, my wife's totally changed. What's going on? And the therapist said, you can have this too. And some of us are sitting there just going, Jonathan, that sounds all nice. That sounds all fairy tale. I literally talked to Sean. He told me this story Monday. They've been married 15 years. For some of us, even as we read this, we say, Jonathan, this, this sounds really nice. I mean, yes, we are very self-centered people. Yes, it would be good to go enter into relationships with some give and take. I think secular people would probably argue that. But I struggle to find the strength to do that. Yes, I see here that Paul is urging us that this is impossible for us to do on our own. But possibly if we allow God to do that through us. But Jonathan, honestly, what's, what's that look like? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1. Because the author paints a very specific picture of what this look like, as a matter, what this looks like. As a matter of fact, in Psalm chapter one, we're going to see a scripture very similar to the Ephesian scripture, and that you see here's how you don't want to live, here's how you do want to live, and then right in the middle of it, he paints. A picture, which, by the way, is the memory verse for this week, verse three. He paints a picture. Almost like this metaphorical look at like what this can look like in our life. Let's read together. Psalm chapter 1. It starts off and says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way the sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Okay, sounds good. I don't want to do any of that stuff. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on the law day and night. Okay, this guy sounds like he right, reads the Bible, prays, you know, meditates on scripture. Verse three, that person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Here, the author of this psalm says, we don't want to be like the wicked. I think we argue that. I think none of us would argue with that. And in a way, we want to be like this, but, but what's that look like? And he goes, okay, let me tell you what this looks like. And he uses an analogy that everyone there would know. In the midst of a world that's full of just death and destruction and things that are withering away and dying, all of a sudden there sits this tree that's living. 
in a dry desert where a bunch of dead stuff is, all of a sudden there's this tree that's living because it's planted by the water. And its roots are down and they're getting the nourishment from the water. So even through storms, through dry spells, through whatever, it doesn't matter because this, this tree is connected to the source of life, which is this water source that never runs dry. Interestingly enough, Jesus used the same metaphor when he meets a woman at the well. He's like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we drank and we never were thirsty again? And she's like, yeah, that'd be cool. Hook me up with this spiritual Gatorade. I want some of this. And he's like, hey, you know what? I can give you living water. He uses that analogy. In John chapter 15, he actually tells the people, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me. Stay connected to the source and you'll live. Depart from me, detach, and you will dry up like a dry dead branch and you will wither and blow away. Same analogy. I fly a lot. And uh, when I fly, I always uh, take off from California and I head east and there's a lot of dry land underneath you. And I always look out the window and I find it fascinating because there's all this dry land and all of a sudden you'll see this green stripe. And I always thought that was interesting. And I realized there's all this vegetation growing right by a waterway. And it's like a river, a stream, a spring. All of a sudden, there's a place where trees will live because their roots are tapped into this ongoing source of life. And what the Lord wants us to understand here in his word is that our relationships with others flow from our relationship with him. And many of us, we try to go out and do it on our own. We're like a plant that's just planted in the middle of the desert. And we're like, hey, it's raining a little bit. I'm okay. But all of a sudden the storms go away. And all of a sudden it's this dry spell and we die and wither and are like chaff, dried dead branches blowing in shells, blowing away. And he goes, no, we can be planted like a tree with its roots planted, getting nutrients from the water, and that tree will never die or blow away. Well, Jonathan, would that be great? What's that actually look like? Look at verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, some of us are sitting saying, I, I would like to have these nutrients, but what are these do these nutrients come in like a little power bar that I could just have pop real quick once a day maybe and be good enough for the day and be good with my wife, be good with my relationships at work, good in my relationships with other. I mean, just is there some gum, kind of like some nicotine gum, you know, some, some little something that'll just, you know, give me this. Uh, what, what, what's this look like? And he's talking about delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, meditating in the word. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you. I uh, grew up as a pastor's kid hearing all the time about how we should read our Bibles and, and just pray and enjoy stuff. And I was a very hyper kid. Very, and, and I always kind of was like, just read, read my Bible, delight in my Bible. Is there, is there a Bible movie I could watch instead maybe? Maybe starring Liam Neeson perhaps? Or, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, that read? Really? My wife's an amazing woman. I'd come downstairs uh, in the morning and every morning she'd be sitting in this chair and it was kind of like her, it was like her reading chair and she'd have the word open and she was uh, just taking it in and loving it. My wife grew up in a, an abusive home, um, went and escaped her home by joining the military, uh, went to the Air Force, got into an abusive relationship and she was like, this ain't right. I know there's something else out there. And she drove by a church and she literally was praying. She's like, God, I'm, I'm sure you're up there. Is the answer there? And she went and by, by God's leading, she went into this church and she met some other believers and she met Jesus and her life was radically changed and Jesus rescued her. And she was so in love with God and when I met her and we got married, she always, I would always see this, she was so excited to read the love letter from the person who rescued her from God, her father. And she's so in love with God. And I, I, I didn't have that. 
I love God. I, I want to obey him. When I read his Bible, I even thought this is good. I actually started preaching his word. I don't think I wasn't a believer. I just think I was missing out. And when it came to this meditate day and night, I was really struggling. And I'm like, I just don't want to meditate. I just don't have it. And it was interesting because I started to notice some dryness happening in my life. I started to notice my temper getting the best of me. And there was times where literally yelling at the kids. My wife would be like, Johnson, Johnson, you know, you got this? And I'm like, I got this. And that was the problem. I got this. And I would try. And I'd fail miserably. And I'm like, why can't I do this? And there was times where she and I would argue and, and she'd be like, Jonathan, and she'd bring something up and I would be like, well, see, here's the problem. The problem is, and again, it was my flight, my, and I couldn't see. For, and I would tell her why it was her issue True story. I um, was speaking. I had a book come out. I did a radio interview on the book. I came home, and my wife, I, uh, she was my delight. I just couldn't wait to be home with her, to hang out with her. And I was going home, and I think, I was thinking, oh, what are we going to do? Maybe we're going to, you know, uh, the girls were home, and I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go somewhere for dinner. What do we do? This will be so fun. And I walk in the door, and um, something was wrong. She was standing, waiting for me at the door, and she was standing, trembling. I can still see her face. And she looked at me, and she said, Jonathan, I'm leaving you. You can talk to me in counseling. Don't even try to stop me. I need some time. You need help. And she walked out the door. Uh, I've, maybe some people have experienced different type of loss. I've experienced some, but nothing like that moment. My heart was just ripped out. It probably took me half an hour to 45 minutes to even register what happened. When she said that to me, I actually didn't argue back because I knew, I knew she was right. You would have thought I would have, like a lawyer, articulate, no, but see, it's actually, I didn't. When she actually said, she goes, Jonathan, I'm leaving you. My response, literally, if there was a video camera set up, was, uh. Just as I, I, was, I was shocked. And I don't know why I was. I should have known. That night, I literally went to bed sobbing. I had never spent an evening I could remember not saying goodnight to her. And she goes, we'll talk in counseling. Don't even reach out. And I, I sat there sobbing. I, I, I literally hit the ground on the floor when she left and then I went upstairs and I did something I've never really done before. I laid on the ground crying out to God, begging him to bring her back. And then I did that first night something that I started to do night after night is I looked up at the ceiling and there I could picture this black ceiling and then I have one of those clocks that projects the time on the wall because time's very important, everybody. Time is. And I looked up and I saw the time, and I saw this black ceiling. And I'm not going to tell you some funny story of like, oh, and God came and sat on my bed, and here's what he said. I'm like, no, none of that. But I cried out to him, and let me tell you something. He was there. I was like, God, I've made a mess of things. And he was there. He was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I need you so bad. And he's like, I'm here. I'm like, please bring her back. And he's like, keep praying. And I literally just fell asleep praying. Next morning I get up, I go downstairs. The first thing I see is her chair, but it's empty and she's not there. And I lose it. I completely lose it. And I hit the ground again and I start sobbing and I start crying out to God. And I'm like, please, please, I surrender you got me. Fix me. Fix my marriage. And for, ready folks? Months. While we're trying to get this thing fixed. Every night, every morning, every day, I'm crying out. Soft. I, I lost 30 pounds during those couple months. People go, what'd you do? What workout? I'm curious because people want to work out. I'm like, what'd you how'd you lose it? I'm like, tears. Okay? I lost 30 pounds in tears. Because I'm a wuss. I cried every night. Cried myself to sleep. I remember, I, I haven't really told any audiences this. I don't know why I'm just thinking of it right now. There was these moments where I remember I'd have a dream. 
And in my dream, we had a two-story house, and I used to hear, when Lori was putting on her makeup or whatever, I could hear her footsteps above me, and I'd hear this clop, 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 clop. And I was always comforted by that. And I, I hadn't heard that in a long time. And I fell asleep, and I remember in my dream hearing the footsteps. And I went up there, and she's like, I just had to come back. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was so excited. And I woke up, and I looked, and she was gone. And this kept happening night after night. I was just sobbing. And every time I would just cry out to God and be like, God, fix me, fix my marriage. That day one, I sat in her chair and I opened up the Bible and I didn't know where to turn, so I opened up Psalm 1 and I started digesting his word like I've never digested it before. And when I read this, I was like, I need to be planted by the water. And when I read a little further, I was like, I need that. And then as I was reading David's Psalms, I'm like, oh, David, you get me. David was crying a lot. I'm like, yeah, you, you know, don't you? And I'm getting to, and I, I mean, I read the book of Psalms in a couple of days, just literally, just a few days. And then I went back and I was like, I started reading them again. I started memorizing I just started just taking it in. Not because I had to because my Sunday school teacher told me to. Not because I was trying to impress anybody. I was by myself. Nobody was seeing this. And I needed it. I literally was so thirsty for it. And for the first time in my life, I remember sitting there trying to watch Netflix because I love movies. Especially Liam Neeson movies. Anyway, but I love movies. And I tried turning on uh, Netflix and I kind of got bored halfway through. And I was like, nothing Nothing helps. And I went back and I opened up my word and I'm like, God, I thirst for you. I never had before. But there was something about it because I knew that he was in charge and I knew that the creator of the world was listening to me. He cared enough about me to listen to me. And so I would sometimes get to a certain psalm. I'm like, oh, this one's good. This Psalm 51, you guys went through it last week. I'm like, oh, check this out. So I would pray. I'd be like, create in me a pure heart. Renew my spirit. You know, and I would pray those prayers. Psalm 119, man, that's the money right there. I still, to this day, read Psalm 119 almost every day. I love Psalm 119. I couldn't get enough of that. How, how does a young man stand a path of purity? By living according to his word. I seek you with all my heart. Let me not stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love it. Praise be to you, Yahweh. I mean, I just, I can go on. I love it. I never had that before. For the first time in my life, I was tapped into him. And you know what? Something happened. I was driving down the road. And this old guy pulled in front of me. And normally when an old dude pulls in front of me and goes 10 miles under the speed limit, I pass him, I do something. I'm like, why is he on the road? And the first thing I thought is, you know, my dad's kind of getting up there. And, and he's not, you know, driving quite as good as he used to and stuff like that. And, you know, this guy, you know, I, I, it must be tough when that happened. I, I hope he does okay. And I literally I just prayed for him for a second. And all of a sudden I went, What? Who is this guy? Before my wife left me, there was all these idiots on the road. And for some weird thing, the day that she left me, they all disappeared. They weren't there anymore. I was watching my favorite TV show, Justified, uh, and the U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens meets this guy who would get in a fight with all these different people. And when he meets this guy, he tells me, he says, hey, uh, and I'll paraphrase. He says, if you encounter an idiot in the morning, you probably just encountered an idiot in the morning. If you encounter idiots all day, you're the idiot. And I was like, oh, I'm the idiot. And I actually used the word he used, which was a bad word. I was like, I'm that. And I just fell on my face and I surrendered. And I said, God, fix me and fix my marriage. Our relationships with others flow from our relationship with the Lord. Uh, my wife and I started going to counseling and um, when she met me, she goes, Jonathan, you're a different guy. 
I'm like, yeah, I'm 30 pounds thinner. You should see all those tears. I got buckets of them at home. I've saved them. And we just started interacting, and it was amazing how, uh, well, let me end by telling you this. We got back together, and uh, we started changing a bunch of things. And the, the end of the story is we just celebrated 30 years, new rings, new vows, uh, moved houses, changed, we changed jobs, changed everything. I just, it, all new beginnings by God's grace. While we were packing, I was packing and I found this chart that I had made and I'll, I'll close with this. This chart was this chart that I made six months before Lori left me. And uh, it was funny because it shows the state of unrest I was in. This chart was like things that I thought, if I could fix these things in my life, if I could fix these things in my life, it'd be good. And you should have seen this chart. I'm just being completely vulnerable with you. The chart was like, read your Bible, pray, go on a run, lift, eat. You know, I, I literally, I, I'm a detail guy. I'm really weird. I do, and so I was all like, you know, eat, you know, you didn't eat any, you know, like fattening food, you know, and I literally, I had all these things. I was like, didn't look anything appropriate, no inappropriate joke. No, I had all these things that I felt like if my life looked like this and I had my own little book of Leviticus right here, all my little rules, you know, just laid out with check boxes. So, and I thought, if I do this, I'm going to, I sensed something was wrong. Here's the funny thing. This is months after, and I'm looking back at this thing I wrote, and I only tried it for three days, and I just gave up. And you should have seen, it's a complete failure. Missing boxes everywhere. I mean, I, I failed pathetic. No wonder I gave up. I was like, forget this. This is a stupid plan. And I'm sitting there going, no wonder she left me, you know? What a schlub. I mean, this guy got, couldn't check any of the boxes. And as I'm sitting there, I actually started laughing. I thought, well, that's just a sec. I wonder. And I looked. And I started looking. And every box, I was like, I wonder if I were to do that right now. And I just looked just for, I hadn't even thought about this stupid checkbox thing. And I looked. And literally, I was like, well, read Bible? Of course. That's my lifeblood. Prayed. <laughs> Reached out to him every, yeah, need to even more. Yeah, this, oh, absolutely, check, check, check. Matter of fact, every box, one box was, I think, read a book, I, I like read a business book or a book that's a self-help, and I, that box wasn't checked. Every other box was checked. I hadn't read a book you know, that day. I hadn't read, opened up another book. I read the Psalms, but every box was checked. Now, I'm not telling you that to say, Jonathan, look how good you are. Quite the contrary. What I'm telling you that story is so that you might relate that when I tried to check all those boxes, pathetic, I couldn't do it. But when I threw the sheet away, didn't even try, and I just planted myself by the living water and said, God, fill me, fix me, fix my relationships. And when I did that, I didn't even think about a checkbox, and guess what he did? He checked all my boxes. And he wants to do that in your life as well. It's not by us trying really hard. It's by us giving up and saying, God, I can't do it. I surrender. Do it for me. Let's pray.